0: Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lennox.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. We're joined this week by Dan Griffith. Dan is the Senior Vice President and Director of Wealth Strategy for Huntington Private Bank. In this role, he leads a team of advisors dedicated to advising ultra-high net worth clients, develops the intellectual capital of the private bank, and educates clients and colleagues on planning techniques. Thanks so much for joining us, Dan.
2: David, thank you for having me. Glad to be here.
1: Our topic this week is unusual, and that is a living one, Claire Bronfman. (laughs) Claire is the youngest daughter of billionaire philanthropist and former Seagram's Liquor chairman, Edgar Bronfman Sr., and she's now best known or infamous, I guess, for her involvement in Nexium, spelled N-X-I-V-M, so I'll be trying to not call this Nexivism the entire time which was a multi-level marketing company and cult based near Albany, New York, has recently given the full expose treatment in the excellent HBO miniseries, The Vow. For those who aren't familiar, Nexium initially appeared to be, effectively, Scientology with a liberal arts degree, pretty much well-off white people trying to better themselves by talking with other well-off white people about how much they want to better themselves without any actual action. However, below that semi-innocuous surface, there was a bizarre undercurrent of blackmail and sex slavery, because, of course, for the benefit of Sengali-esque leader Keith Rainier. But through her sister Sarah, Claire became involved in Nexium's personal advancement program and executive success program workshops. The sisters became committed followers and relocated to upstate New York to work as Nexium trainers. Claire and her sister tried to introduce their father to Nexium. Edgar broke up with the group after learning that Claire had given the organization a $2 million loan in scare quotes, which she effectively had just given them $2 million. Claire eventually went on to become Nexium's operations director and one of its largest, largest financial contributors, which unsurprisingly caused a rift between her and her father that ultimately became criminal. Claire installed keylogger software on her father's computer, allowing Nexium members to access the email for years. Ultimately, in the years leading up to and following Edgar's death in 2013, She would spend a total of $150 million of a reported $200 million inheritance on Nexium. In April 2019, Claire pleaded guilty to conspiracy to conceal and harbor illegal aliens for financial gain and to fraudulent use of identification and was sentenced to six years and nine months in prison by a federal judge. Profman's bizarre story highlights the need to educate the next generation about money. Though the average client isn't likely to inherit hundreds of millions of dollars and is even less likely to become embroiled in a massive sex cult, The story of a child wasting their inheritance on something frivolous is an all too common one, as is the tendency for parents to get sucked into the problems of said child, much as Edgar became negatively associated with Nexium despite denouncing it many times. Dan, regardless of how wealthy a family may or may not be, educating the next generation about money is imperative. Do you mind expanding a bit on what exactly that means?
2: Oh, David, that's a a great observation. And one of the things that we talk about with our group and with all of our clients are that there are certain concerns that we have as individuals that really bridged the gap between anyone regardless of their net worth and worrying about one's children is, of course, one of the things that is a universal. It doesn't matter how well off you are um, on one side of the ledger or not. We all worry about what the future holds for our kids. And part of that is that wealth doesn't necessarily translate into success as as you highlighted in this what we hopefully is an, an extreme example. But unfortunately, with the numbers that we see, particularly in the Midwest with substance abuse and 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 the Oxycontin, fentanyl, concerns that we've had here locally, there are people who are in that position regardless of where they are, how much money they have. Uh, and so worrying about the future is a universal that we can all look at and say, yep, that that's something I can relate to. And often something that people want a lot more information about as they think about planning.
1: Yeah, I'm really actually, this is a weird sentence, but I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the opiate crisis right at the top here because I think that's part of the very interesting part of this Claire Brofman story is again, super ridiculous. But there is a weird parallel here between sort of like her falling in with this cult and involving her parents and eventually stealing from them and trying to get them into it and her sister and and sort of the whole family getting involved. That that, that sort of mirrors a pretty common fact pattern for someone who falls into sort of an opiate addiction, right? That for someone with a drug seeking behavior is much more common and it kind of looks the same way a lot of the times.
2: That's really true. And one of the things we talk to clients about is people express concerns about making sure that younger heirs receive, quote unquote, a lot of money. And it's kind of funny to think about when someone says, well, you know, it's only $100,000 or it's only half a million dollars that I'm giving, I think, boy, when I was 18 years old, how much money would have been a lot of money? I mean, a thousand dollars would have been a lot of money. And unfortunately, for many people, giving an 18-year-old $10,000 can be the equivalent of giving them a loaded weapon if they're struggling with not just substance abuse, but being in a position where they fall into the wrong people who might have the wrong aims. I'm I am sure that Claire in this example here went into the efforts that she had with Nexium, well-intended. It was, it's clear that that was, you know, the beginning state, but unfortunately her dad has to deal with the fact that the dollars that he and his family created and were eventually used uh, to harm people to the point where obviously federal charges were filed. And so that's something that I think we all need to worry about. Are we, are we using our legacy to create positive work in the world? And Edgar Sr., did a lot of great things to advocate on behalf of a number of philanthropic causes, in particular for the plight of of the Jewish community throughout throughout the world. He did some some wonderful things to to help out the the community in particular. But obviously he's got to deal with the fact, I mean he's gone, but it has to deal with the fact that his legacy involves some things that are less than less than ideal as you described, David. And that's something that that, that could be a concern or risk for everybody.
1: Yeah, it's kind of ironic. I mean, do Groffman is one of the names famously that signed to the the Bill and Melinda Gates giving pledge, right?
2: Right, right. Um, yeah. So, so
1: then to have that sort of uh, compare and contrasted with with crazy sex cult uh, right. is is, <laughs> is sort of a weird. An
2: extreme, an extreme, as we said before. That's right.
1: One interesting thing about what you said, and sort of this the family's justifying, like, "Oh, I'm only giving someone." X amount of money, what can they do with it? It's twofold. First of all, I agree. When I was 18, I worked in a deli for $300 a week and I immediately blew that. (laughs) So I can't imagine what I would have done with $500,000, right? It would have been useless. Um, That's
2: a lot more sandwiches,
1: David. That's exactly right, yes. Yeah, that's a lot of sandwiches. (laughs) But also like when you're looking at that situation and you're already seeing people sort of make these excuses, like they know already before they even like, it's not an unexpected thing that this, this child is going to have a problem with money, right? Like they're looking at it, they know there's the problem. And they're like, ah, it's only this much. How can I, you know what I mean? And I think that's also a very common fact pattern where where you see the problem and you can do something about it. And I think, you know, Edgar Bronfman here, he knew about this, right? He knew about Nexium that she had given them a ton of money. He was involved in this, like we're dragged into this while he was alive. The plan could have changed. You that's know what ex- I mean? she That's exactly right. Life, even though he knew and exactly. i think that's another thing was like you know you people don't want to admit the worst about their kids and i think that's a big part of this
2: well the the good thing is we want to give all of us want to i'm lucky enough to have four kids and one of the things that we're looking at is making sure that we're giving them the tools to succeed and i think a lot of people who are parents think about that in the terms of hey i've got to get my kids through high school through college i've got to get them into the professional world you mentioned the opiate crisis before what we're seeing is that know people are developing addictions in their 50s and 60s when you know i've had a couple just heart-wrenching conversations with parents in their 80s or 90s saying, boy, I I had a successful professional as a child. I thought you know, they were in great shape, and then all of a sudden now I'm dealing with this. So the good news is that there are strategies, like you mentioned, David, to help put people in a position where they're still going to benefit from the wealth that the family has created, but it's not going to be able to be used as a tool directly in their hands to do things that none of us want to see, including the people who might inherit those dollars. And so those are some of the strategies that are worth discussing and worth making, putting everybody in a position where they can say, thank goodness this is the plan that was developed uh, on our behalf.
1: Absolutely. I'm good. Thank you for sort of getting us on track to the meat of our, uh, <laughs> our conversation here. I do so love a tangent. But uh, you know, as you being the responsible host of the show, thank you. And so let's just talk about a little bit of what those, you know, those strategies look like. What 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 are the what are we talking about here?
2: Well, there are a number of things to consider. One of them is, are the concerns that the parents have about their kids legitimate? I I think that's first and foremost, and that can go both ways. I think, David, as we talk to uh, families about what, what they're going to do to create their legacy, some of them express real concerns about their kids that I would consider sometimes to not be maybe as valid. I had a great conversation with a client many, many years ago who talked to me about Wanting to make sure that he left his money in trust for his daughter until she was at least 65 years old, because you know he was concerned about the fact that she was not so great with money. Uh, And I looked down at the numbers and looked at the intake sheet and said, uh, "Remind me how old your daughter is." And he said, "You know." She's seven, but every time she gets a dollar, <laughs> she spends it. And so I think we kind of had to talk him out of that a little bit. I said, "Well, if you know, if you wait until she's 65 to receive these dollars, all you're going to do is kind of mess up her Medicare Part B premiums, right? Like, let's let's talk about what what is reasonable here. And part of that is to get parents to begin to do some testing. So first of all, is is the concern reasonable or isn't it? On that reasonableness scale, of course, we also have Uh, Delusional parents as well. I was at a little league game last night and I I felt like at the end of the game, you know, maybe my son is uh, able to go go on to be a professional baseball player that's delusional and I recognize that that's that's probably not appropriate so sometimes with parents you might say hey you may feel comfortable with an outright distribution. But it's our job as advisors to maybe talk a little bit about what the risks are there. So is it a regi- legitimate concern or isn't it? Uh, and I think that's an important one. And there are legitimate concerns that we can talk a little bit about, David, that also relate to just the, the unknown risks that, ap- that appear for anyone who's uh, out there when it comes to asset protection? Is, is divorce something that can happen in the future? So are you going to be uh, giving money to a business owner or to a medical or a legal professional who could be liable for something like malpractice? Those are all things to consider uh, when you're looking at what the potential risk is in the future.
1: Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm glad you brought up this idea of sort of who are you working for, right? Because I think that's an important thing for advisors to wrap their head around when you're dealing with advising for family wealth. And I often bring this up more in the estate planning and divorce context, where a lot of times, you know, there'll be a a spouse with the money and the power, and there'll be the other spouse. And, you know, the the other spouse will often think that, oh, this attorney who's been working with us for our entire lives is also my attorney. And it's like, well, really, no, it's it's the powerful spouse's attorney generally. And they're not necessarily working for you. And so for a lot of advisors, like they're working with, you know, there's still that same dynamic in our family. So they're often the advisor was brought in to work for, quote unquote, the business, which is generally the main person, the, the breadwinner, be it the patriarch, the matriarch, whoever's the person who built this business. And then the rest of the family is just kind of like a guy they know who's also our advisor. But it needs, it needs to be sort of a, a clear conversation and a clear realization on, on everyone's part who the advisor is working for.
2: That's a great point, and, and absolutely essential. It's one of the things, obviously, that we look to in the in the legal world as we think about who is your client and who do you owe a duty and obligation to. But I think, as broadly, uh, we think of life as advisors. Whether you're somebody who's doing kind of investment advising, financial planning, tax advising, I think it's good to kind of do that broader level of education to say, hey it's my responsibility to talk a little bit more about what are some of the nightmare scenarios that exist out there and certainly again david you began the conversation with what anyone would describe as a nightmare scenario as far as you know taking a legacy and what what is it going to be doing in the future but i think that nightmare is amplified but still exists for people at any level of net worth. And so that, that nightmare might be, Hey, we, you know, I'm generation two in a business and I'm conveying this business to generation three. We want to make sure we're good stewards. And so, that nightmare scenario might be something as, as little as, hey, we just want to make sure that generation three doesn't take over the business and ruin it as opposed to substance abuse or things like a, a divorce ruining, ruining a legacy that's there. So it's all an emotional fear that people experience. And that's what's important to speak to when you're an advisor. Who are you speaking to? What are they looking for as far as advice, as you mentioned before, What can we do to educate people about the potential outcomes that are there? And then how can we deal with some of those fears to say, let's create some solutions so that we can create peace of mind?
1: Mm -hmm. This is sort of a a very big topic. So how do you broach, you know, bringing these conversations up to clients, especially, you know, maybe a client who's slightly less delusional than than they want and you know, they're worried about the the money responsibility of their seven-year-old, or maybe (laughs) someone who's more sort of reasonably like, I have a 21-year-old who's just getting into the business. They're going to start making some money. How do I, you know, sort of, where do you start with that conversation of, of prepping sort of you know, your traditional sort of child moving into
2: adulthood? So I think stories are, are essential. And David, I, that's one of the reasons that I, I really do love this podcast. I'm a fan before I was a guest is because I think it is a great way to illustrate um, to clients that, some of these concepts or ideas are a little less far-fetched than they may think that they are. So I think often it's good to go through what some of those hypotheticals are and to talk to clients a little bit about them. I will often start a conversation with clients talking about concepts that are a little more tangible. So for example, when we talk about conveying assets to the next generation, one of the things that I say is, hey, if one of your kids were to pass away before you, are you setting up your trust in such a way that you make sure that the assets remain kind of within your bloodline. Either they return to you or they stay within your bloodline as opposed to going outside to to uh, in-laws or or other people that you might not want to be involved in the process. That's a tangible idea. Or even, hey, if you're conveying part of your business uh, to your daughter, great idea, but what happens if she is one of the 50% of marriages that ends in divorce? Um, what happens to the business interests? Are there ways that we can kind of wrap our, our hands around that? and that's a great way to start a legacy discussion because people think well i don't think my daughter's probably going to get involved in opiates right no, nobody sits walks into a conversation thinking that that will be the case but divorce is something that's a little more tangible and often obviously with Talking with clients, many times they've been through that themselves. So giving a couple tangible examples is a great way to get started. And also letting people know that there are solutions that are there. I think, David, that's another big piece that's that's a little bit scary about this is many clients worry about the things that Edgar Bronfam did here. But they think, boy, uh, there might not be a solution to some of these things. There might not be a way to protect my kids from themselves or from outside creditors and predators, but the reality is there are some great structures. And so letting them know that there are some solutions to problems that they thought were not solvable is also a great way to start the conversation. It's not hopeless. It's a good message.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, the obvious starting point is talking with the client, right? But ultimately what we're, we're talking about educating you know, the next generation here. So at what point uh, does that next generation sort of enter the conversation, right, and, and sort of have to have some agency in doing this learning?
2: That's a great a great question, truly unique to each individual circumstances. I've dealt with families who say, hey, you know, mom and dad have an estate plan, and we want to make sure that All the kids are up to speed, uh, where we as the advisors are brought in to do some education and then obviously help the kids and the grandchildren with their estate plans. And to the extent that you've got a good family structure where there aren't unique circumstances, it's a great way to go. I think cards on the table is often a great way of providing education. And also, David, to your point earlier, finding out whether there is a problem or an issue. We often will say to, to families who are a little higher in net worth, maybe it isn't a bad idea to do a little bit of gifting early on just to give the kids a chance to test their, test their feet, right. That, you know, David's that responsible worker in the deli. If we give him $10,000, maybe he'll invest it wisely and, and uh, use it for things that we like like education or charity, or if y'all, you know, blows it on a fancy car, maybe we'll know that, right. As we prepare a state plan in the future, there are a lot of families that kind of also say, you know, uh, my kids really don't understand the breadth of my wealth We see that particularly here in the Midwest, where generally the clients we're working with have built their own wealth. I think, you know, in other parts of the country uh, or other parts of the world where the wealth is multi generational, it's a little bit different. But a lot of our clients say, you know, my kids don't think, uh, don't understand how wealthy we are, and they've not really grown up that way. And so I'm not sure I want to convey that to them right away. But that has pitfalls too. I mean, being affluent takes a little time and effort and education to make sure that you're not that you are being a good steward and that you're not acting irresponsibly with the assets that are there so i think the more education the better is uh, probably not a surprising answer from someone like me but the more education i think also gives you a chance to see and test out that level of responsibility for the next generation and even generations into the future
1: i am a giant fan of philanthropy as sort of like training wheels for handling wealth. I think that's, it's a really, just, I think it's a really great concept, right? Because ultimately nobody's getting hurt. <laughs> and it's like, oh, he wasted all this money on philanthropy. <laughs> you know, what's, what's it, gonna, it went to the wrong cause. It's sort of one of those things. And I think, I think, uh, advisors, Claire,
2: Claire and Sarah might be an example of where maybe that is yeah, the case. Maybe, but, yeah. but often, <laughs> often, David, that is not. You're right. It's, it's a much safer route than many others. Go ahead.
1: I, I think a lot of advisors are catching on to this, though. And I think that's largely what's fueling a lot of the rise of donor advised funds. In the last sort of 10, 15 years is sort of the, it is sort of easy to set up, you know, with training wheels of somebody watching it. It's not like a foundation where, where you're really committing to something, you know, meaty that, that you have to like, Right, like, right. you now have like a, something that, that's like a burden on the family almost, which is a funny way to think about a foundation, but it's almost like you started another business. So that's, I think that, you know, the donor advised fund is a real, you know, and it can be pretty small. So it's one of the really like a very nice way to sort of Let, you know, let the kids test the waters a little bit in terms, especially if you get them young and just have like, oh, you know, try this out, see what you think about it. And there's someone to keep an eye on it.
2: It's a, it's a great idea. There's a number of reasons why donor advised funds can be a great way to kind of dip, dip your toe in the water. The first is there are some really good tax benefits because of the uh, 2017 tax changes, a lot of families were looking for opportunities to say, how can we bulk our giving into one year? And, you know, giving a lot of money to a donor advised fund in one year allows you to kind of maximize your charitable gift. And in doing so, then you still preserve it for future years for charitable uses. So I think the tax benefits are a big one, a big reason we've seen some growth in donor advised funds. But there, I think, are two other factors that that make it very attractive. The second one is, that usually you're coordinating with community foundations and Across the country, there are a lot of really, really effective, wonderful community foundations out there. And so it's great to partner with uh, those foundations because they can bring ideas and issues and best practices to the table. So it's an automatic built-in resource that, as you mentioned before, David, if you've got a private foundation, might not necessarily be there if you don't have you know, really, really large dollars. And finally, I think this is a big one too, you know where the dollars are gonna end up. You, you uh, have some flexibility but ultimately, you've ended up in a position where you know that the money is going to go to the community that's there. And so lots of donor advised funds, lots of different structures. But at the end of the day, it's a great way to kind of test things out. At our house a couple of years ago, we did a little experiment where over the course of the summer, every time we went to go get ice cream, we put a, a tick mark on a little sheet that we hung on the refrigerator. And at the end of the year, at the, during the holidays, we accumulated those and put, put a dollar uh, amount next to them and had a little basket of dollars then that we were to distribute. And we didn't do it through a donor advice fund because it wasn't very much, but we went to get ice cream a fair amount and it was neat to tie one to the other, right. To say, Hey, we're going to go do something that we really like and enjoy as a family. But at the end of the day, we know that we're going to be throwing $5 into a kitty that at Christmas time, we're going to divide up at our house. And so that was a good way to test the waters to see what was what was out there? What the kids were passionate about, and just begin to talk about this culture of charity and collaboration that I think a lot of families need and and look forward to.
1: Yeah, I was really my own sort of experience with that too. The, 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 the sort of the small stakes experiments can be really enlightening and also just really fun. When I was younger, my father and I sort of feel like wanted me to learn about the stock market a little bit, so we bought like very few shares of, of a couple of stocks and just kind of tracked them every so often, you know, throughout a couple of years. And I mean, they went hilariously badly for us because I mean, my dad was a CPA, but he wasn't (laughs) an investor by any means. So we were in like Lucent Technologies, you know, like a name from the past. (laughs) Oh yeah, like Boeing. These these did not go well, but just, you know, the- And and, a few
2: shares of Enron, no doubt, David, right? (laughs) Something like that, yeah. It didn't matter
1: because there was like three shares, right? But it was- you know, just so that I could get used to back then it was, you know, you would look in the paper for the ticker and, and what this means and, and what it is to own, you know, here's what the certificate is and here's what all these things mean. And just, to, you know, even if we were sort of like playing, you know what I mean? We, we was still familiarizing myself with what this is and what it looks like. And you're teaching me the lesson of like, yeah, my dad's not infallible. This was a total disaster.
2: <laughs> well, you learned something about him, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's interesting the Part
1: of it too, right? Is that these, these, it's these family exercises, you almost get more value. we talk about money values, but ultimately it's about values, which sounds very touchy-feely, but that's what really you're trying to pass on, right? It's not just, this is what money is. It's sort of like, this is what money is for us in our family. And here's what we, you know, so a lot of that happens throughout you know, the rest of the the conversation by accident almost, right? Through the process, even, even though it's not like specifically the end goal.
2: That's exactly right. I think you do get a chance to say, as we hear families, you know, hey, this is something I'm going to give to you and I want you to make it uh, whatever you can. Or this is a legacy that was given to us. And here's our philosophy about the way the legacy is given. It creates some consistency, like you mentioned before, in the message. You know, this is what our Family philosophy is about how to be good stewards of this tool and ultimately money is a tool it's it's an interesting conversation when you go from being in a position as we see many of our clients asking the question, you know, can we go on vacation right do we have the resources to go on vacation to teaching people kids and adults young adults in particular. Should we go on vacation? Right, that's a very, very different question that requires a different level of discipline, a different level of skill set, and a different level of thinking about okay, what's the best use of my time, effort, and these resources. Uh, And there's lots of great exercises to kind of get that started. But I think a lot of families also kind of shy away from talking about money or when they do talk about it, it's in a, a stressful period where there may be a lack of funds or, you know, argument over how to use those funds. So doing the kind of exercises that you and I just described, David, allow us to have positive, proactive conversations, which always makes it a little bit easier. And it does give you a chance to kind of get a window into the into your kids and grandchildren about the way they view these things.
1: So Dan, we've sort of talked about, you know, the crazy client who's worried about their seven year old. And I sort of specifically asked you about someone who's moving into adulthood. But is it ever too late to really do this? Cause I know as many advisors, every advisor's gotta have the experience of their client talking about, oh, my idiot kid is, I'm so worried they're going to get this money and all this stuff. And you're like, oh, how old is this kid? And it's like, oh, the kid is a 58 year old who's been working responsibly in the family business for 25 years. <laughs> is there any sort of, <laughs> is, is there a cap on sort of what the child is and when you can start teaching the child the money values, do you find?
2: I think it becomes, you raise a great point, David, and that is the later you wait to have the conversations, the more that people's philosophies are already going to be formed. And I think um, sometimes a mistake that parents make is that they say, well, I'm going to wait and maybe even unintentionally kind of create a little bit of reliance on the parents and retain some control. And the longer you do that, the more it becomes a, a sense of, reliance that probably can become negative. So I think it is never too late to go in and kind of say, all right, we as a family are going to take this approach. How can we work together? But I think the longer you wait, the harder that conversation is because people's ideas and, and uh, disciplines will already be formed. There's, there are fewer teachable moments for a 58 year old than there are for an eight year old. I think we would all agree that that's true in every realm.
1: This idea of a sort of manufactured reliance is, is, is an interesting one as well. Um, because normally you see that that's very similar to the fact pattern you see in a different family context, right? And sort of in in, in the realm of divorce and the realm of sort of abusive, not physically abusive, but not necessarily sort of abusive power dynamic in relationships of, you start off with like, well, you know, I'm the one who controls the money and I'll, you know, create some reliance to sort of tie this person to me. And then you never give that person a chance to prove they don't need to rely on you, right? Because you're, you're sort of tacitly always being like, well, you know, I can just take care of this. and You can rely on me. Oh, you don't need to take care of this. And since they never get the chance to, A, they never show themselves they can and resentment grows. And B, they never show you, you can, they can because you haven't allowed them to. So your idea that they're relying on you becomes even more entrenched and it becomes this self-fulfilling sort of, you know, financially abusive relationship that doesn't just happen between spouses. It can easily happen between parents and children as well
2: you know, David, it happens at every level, right? We see that happening regardless of how affluent the families are. It might be something that's easy to say, well, that's a, a quote, unquote, rich person problem. But I mean, that can happen regardless of how affluent the family is. It's, it's a real concern there too. The the emotional piece of what's there is really important. I think as a society, uh, we've seen much more willingness and ability uh, for people to kind of open up when we talk about funds and, and good stewardship there's been a lot more conversation broadly about financial planning and financial education. And anyone can at the, you know, with a quick search on the internet, find answers to some of the questions and financial calculators that will help through that process. What we don't have, what we don't have out there are answers to some of the emotional questions that you can search, right? And Google search isn't going to answer the question, how do I deal with a a parent who's trying to control me through use of money, right, David? I mean, that's what you're talking about. That's where having good advisors, having some open conversations, talking about risks is an absolutely essential function. Again, that's true for every family, regardless of net worth.
1: Yeah, and this is kind of a place where, with where sort of stereotypical differences in the generations, it becomes kind of an interesting aspect here, because you know we have when you have lots of sort of older clients worried about how am I going to teach my kid about money. A lot of times, those younger generations really want to talk about money. <laughs> they are <laughs> like very, they're generally sort of open, even if it's in the you know in the negative, you know, more performative way of sort of virtue signaling and showing what their people, what they're into on social media. Right. Like they're much more open. In, you know about money in general. So it's a, a lot of times the barrier to these conversations happening as you I think alluded to at the very beginning of our conversation is the client themselves, is that older generation. The younger generation a lot of times wants to be involved in this conversation now. And it's just a matter of bringing the two together.
2: Yeah, I think – and maybe w- to, to draw a comparison that isn't related to age two, I, I don't disagree with that, but it's also true that usually it's the people who don't have the money that want to mm-hmm. talk to the people who do about yes. what what's going to happen there, right? And, and that's true across all, all demographics. I also see that, and I don't want to sound that make that sound too negative, because I think there are plenty of people who do that in a very altruistic way. You know, help me understand this a little bit more, help me appreciate it. Or they've got their own fear. Hey, I it's someday I'm gonna inherit a bunch of money and I don't want to screw it up. I don't, you know, want to become, you know, like a lottery winner who ends up, you know, getting rid of the funds right away too. So I think that's part of where the conversation is important and partly where you can break down a little bit to your point, David, some of the assumptions or traditions that might be there. So talking to a grandparent about money might be a challenge, but they might assume that a younger person is automatically not going to be as responsible with funds. Well, to go back to one of the suggestions we mentioned before, that's where maybe a test is a great idea. You know, hey, grandma, are you worried about, you know, giving your granddaughter some, what's going to happen when she inherits meaningful dollars whatever that number may be let's give her a little bit of that today and let her demonstrate and prove that what she's doing is worthy and and give her a little peace of mind along with you the person who's ultimately going to be the donor in that situation that all can be effective
1: yeah and it really is i should stress that it's very individualized even I shouldn't have brought age into your right to sort of chastise me there a little bit for that. Nah, I don't within, mean it yet, says
2: you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Even within
1: I, it, my own family. I mean, just <laughs> on the two sides, like speaking with my mother's father about my grandfather on that side about money. He was a, a Russian Jew who fled, who had to hide in the fields from the Cossacks. He wasn't telling you anything. You know, but my father's father was a CPA. He would tell you whatever you wanted to know. <laughs> so those are two people of the same generation who had very sort of very different experiences and very different relationships with, with talking to their family about money
2: very important yes i do find that it is interesting that families who have had families who uh, are include people of means who have had multi-generations are often a little bit more willing to have the conversation but i think one of the reasons that that that's true is that they've been taught the tools to do that mm-hmm. not universally true but we mentioned before if your first generation wealth you didn't grow up with parents who conveyed to you, "Hey, these are the ways to have conversations about being affluent for the next generation." That—that's not a tool that a lot of first-generation people who gather wealth have. You know, it—it it, it just doesn't exist. But people who have had who are generation three, or generation four, or subsequent, they've had those conversations with their parents, and so they're able to do it too. So that's a unique thing that we see, which is related to culture as opposed to net worth. David, to your to your point.
1: Yeah, and this is definitely a sort of a sins of the father sort of situation where, where things can compound. But I think what, what I think it's overlooked is this idea that, well, if I don't talk to my kid about money, they just won't know. It's like, well, no, this is a a glass that's going to get filled by someone. You know, the kids are going to learn about money from somewhere. You know, Now, whether they learn good or bad habits is immaterial, but they're going to get habits. And so a lot of this is just ensuring that, well, I, let me just fill this glass with the habits I want to fill it with, as opposed to just sitting there passively while someone else who God knows what they do with it is a sort of, you see a lot of the similar thing. I think you heard from, from advisors to professional athletes. It's like somebody is going to get to them and somebody's going to, you know, give them this crash course. And hopefully it's, you know, someone responsible and not like somebody from the old neighborhood who's going to take advantage of them.
2: It's a great, it's a great example to, to draw the parallel between the benefit of having a good advisor. And uh, unfortunately, professional athletes are a great example of where we've seen a lot of cautionary tales there too. But I think it does go back to the idea of have a plan, you know, have good advisors who can advise you, not just on the logistical issues, but also on what are some of the emotional challenges Uh, And good strategies to overcome those, including what are some ways to even raise the issue or question, what are some ways to talk to your kids about this without sounding, putting them in a position where they are being defensive, you know that the dad who had the seven year old daughter that he considered to be irresponsible with money. I'm not sure he was in a position to have a productive conversation with his daughter about that issue based on his own experiences, but maybe if he had a good advisor who could have, you know, could, could tee up that conversation or even give him some advice, it could definitely be a lot more productive to your point, David, if you're 58 and you're just starting the conversation, there are plenty of habits that already exists. They're just maybe not the habits that, that you were hoping would be there.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're definitely going to have a more productive conversation coming into it like, hey, let's learn about this together. Or hey, I want to show you something as opposed to, hey, I'm, let me show you this because you're an idiot. You know, <laughs> like one, one is a much more open, productive right. <laughs> start than the other.
2: Definitely. Yes. Let's, we could talk about the messaging there. That, that could be maybe improved a little bit. That's right. Good so, observation. I,
1: you know, I asked you, as I said, a big, giant, broad question at the start of this, and we've only really... Been able to scratch the surface, unfortunately, but we're running out of time here. So I'd, I'd like to thank Dan Griffith for just being a, a great guest and really, you know, tackling well. I think a, a pretty big topic with us.
2: David, thank you for having me.
1: And for all the listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me on the next episode of Celebrity Estates: Wills of the Rich and Famous.
0: Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates: Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available.